Transparency is critical. And what, what does transparency manifest as for employees in an organization? It's communication and it's visibility. Everyone should know the why and where we're headed and what that plan looks like. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Hello and welcome to a new episode of EEI's Global Circuit Podcast. My name is Lawrence Jones. Today we'll be joined by Ms. Jay Grival. Jay is the President and CEO of Manitoba Hydro. Jay, welcome to the Global Circuit. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'd like to begin, Jay, by maybe just emphasizing the fact that Manitoba Hydro has a very rich history, but I think the global audience listening to this podcast needs a reintroduction. So can you just talk a little bit about the company, how it started, and just give us some historical context? Happy to. Um, so firstly, I just want to explain that Manitoba Hydro is a crown corporation. And what does that mean? It's a business that's owned by the crown, uh, by government. Here it's the provincial government in Manitoba. And so as much as we are a utility, we also operate in the public interest. And our profits are used to keep rates low here and to to make our balance sheet healthy. Um, We have some of the lowest electricity costs in North America and the second lowest in Canada. Um, And it's because we are structured around the public interest. And so you could effectively say our shareholders are our customers because we serve all of Manitoba. So our shareholders are the people of Manitoba. Um, And this would be similar in in the US uh, to what uh, you see as the Tennessee Valley Authority or Bonneville Power Administration. So for Manitoba Hydro, our primary market or what I like to call our domestic market is here within the province. We are the only supplier of electricity. We're also the supplier of natural gas. So we serve virtually every person, every business in Manitoba. And we do that with 32 billion in assets. We're vertically integrated. And what does that mean? We own and operate generation, transmission and distribution on the electricity side. And we transmit and distribute natural gas. And what, is, what you now see as Manitoba Hydro with this balance sheet of 32 billion was once a number of different organizations, very similar to how utilities have evolved everywhere. A lot of different organizations serve different markets with different products. Um, our earliest electric utility here in Manitoba was in the capital city of Winnipeg, and it was actually designed to power electric streetcar networks fascinating that we're all going to be getting back to supporting transportation with electricity, but that's where we started. Interesting. Agriculture was one of the main drivers of large-scale electric development, and that happened after World War I. Um, And that's when the Manitoba Power Commission was set up, and there was a focus on distribution, and it was private utilities that continued to provide electricity. So as the population grew, as agriculture grew, Uh, there was definitely a need for high volume electricity. Um, And after the second world war, the province said, the best model here is for there to be one single utility. And that's when Manitoba Hydro was established. And that was many, many years ago, decades ago in 1949. So over that time in the the 50s and early 60s, all of these different utilities and businesses were consolidated. So they form the core of what Manitoba Hydro is today. And since that time, we've also grown in adding in new infrastructure and assets on all generation transmission and distribution because we needed to build our infrastructure to keep pace. We also in the early 2000s acquired two other utilities. That's when we got into gas transmission and distribution business. We brought a, bought a private sector company called Natural Gas. And then we brought in all of the older generating stations in the south on the Winnipeg River. And that was Winnipeg Hydro. So um, really, we, we grew as demand grew and, uh, and it was consolidated. 
And so, I mean, what, what's fascinating is being a Crown Corp, which is where I started our discussion, is what it means and how it influences us as we operate as a utility. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. And we'll come back to the point you made, Jay, about electric cars uh, being one of the impetus that drove the, the electrification of the province, so to speak. Um, well, you know, before before we get into some of the sort of uh, the intricacies of Manitoba Hydro and some of the good work you're doing, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about your leadership because I know before you, you know, before coming to Manitoba, you you had held other leadership positions, and and I've always been intrigued when I when I when I meet you because there's something about your approach to leadership that I think is unique. So, uh, can you talk about? your leadership approach uh, throughout you know, your career, but specifically its evolution. Because I think uh, one of the things people can learn from leaders like yourself in a very capital intensive industry, a very sort of a very critical infrastructure industry is how do you lead? Especially given what we've gone through, we had the pandemic, we have the ongoing crisis in the world. Talk about your leadership style and, and how that has helped you along the way. So first, I want to start with the fact that I haven't had a traditional career. This is my third utility, but I've also but I've spent my career in three key areas. One was in finance and investment banking. Those were my early days. I spent a decade in that area, which which informed um, how I think about problems and issues and how I uh, try to understand new businesses and new organizations. Secondly, I've spent time in large infrastructure, which is also in the mining industry. Uh, again, very capital intensive uh, and extractive resource that has an impact on, in, on the environment that we operate in. And as I said, my, this is my third utility. I was a CFO at one, I was a CEO at one. And so this is my second role as a president and CEO. I believe like anybody, you develop your leadership skills through a number of ways. For myself, I learned as much from those that I saw acting as a leader and in ways that resonated with me and aligned with my values. I learned as much from those individuals that I've engaged and worked with. And they're not always necessarily in former leadership roles because leadership is not necessarily about the role you hold, but how you engage in an organization, influence an organization and support others. But I've also learned probably more from those whose leadership styles did not resonate with me. They didn't align with my values or, or my approach. So, so it's, it's evolved over time. And I'm, I think one of the key foundations of being an effective leader is self-awareness. Because what is leadership? You're influencing and impacting people. And I take that responsibility very seriously. So... What's the, what is my core fundamental belief in the role when you're a leader, particularly as a president and CEO? My job is to support every single person in the organization to make their job easier. If I make their job easier, we serve our customers better. So my job is to support them. And how do I support them? I make it easier for them to do their work. I remove roadblocks for them. I help solve the problems that are making it difficult for them to serve our customers. I also believe that as a leader, you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Leadership is, is how you get the optimal result, the best decision at the time. And what comes, what, I, what I've learned is the more you take on senior roles, what you say as much as what you don't say has an impact because what you don't say is interpreted. People make up, they fill in the gaps that you don't fill. So I believe the best decisions in an organization are made by a group of people who come at problems and issues with different perspectives, diversity in thought, diversity in experience, diversity in how you approach solving a problem. So with my leadership team, we're called an executive leadership team. When we're talking about a problem or an issue and, and someone's presenting to us or we're going around the table discussing it, I do two things, three things actually. I go around the room and ask everybody their thoughts, 
not just who chooses to engage, because some are not as comfortable. Some will say, I need more time to think about this given how they approach problems, but I do that. Secondly, I go last mm -hmm. on any topic or issue because I do not want to influence anybody other's thinking because the goal is to get to the right and optimal answer. The third thing I do is I really encourage us to challenge and question the issue. That does not mean you're challenging or questioning the person, but the issue. And what I'm always looking at is underlying assumptions. Why? Because based on, you know, been around for a while and what I've learned is whenever you make, you make a decision and, and you assume there's a certain outcome, when that outcome doesn't manifest as you anticipated, it's typically because some of the underlying assumptions weren't on point or, or what impacts them has shifted and changed. So from a leadership perspective, the other thing that I really believe is important, particularly for utilities, because we're in a time of change yeah. and the change is being driven external to us. And we, we all have to respond to that change. How we respond is different depending on where we're starting from. I believe the why is so critical for employees right now. And leaders need to be very clear and crisp on the why, because we have to change. And we don't just have to change the services, the products. It's how we work. Utilities, in my view, particularly, you know, if you're generation transmission and distribution, you have assets that are amortized over 70 years, but have a lifespan of over 100. Hmm. And you've had the luxury in the past of time to achieve certainty in how you make decisions. The environment we operate in will not allow that anymore. There's so much uncertainty, so many variables that, um, and I'm certain we'll get a chance to talk about them, that are impacting our industry that are external to us. So we can't go to a P90, P100 probability on, on decisions. We, we can't, we won't be in a position, I believe, to make no regret decisions. We're going to be in, a, in an environment where we have to make minimum regret decisions where you're assessing all the outcomes and options and you're looking forward because we, we don't know, we know there's change. We don't know how it will manifest or the pace of that change. So you've got to be more agile. You've got to go smaller, take things, test things. And then if that makes sense, then, then take the next bigger step. But I believe agile is, is critical. And I think the last thing I would say is transparency is critical. And what, what does transparency manifest as for employees in an organization? It's communication and it's visibility. And so I'm very focused on transparency and communication, which is the, you know, everyone should know the why and where we're headed and what that plan looks like. Because we all fundamentally have a role to play in that. And I don't believe any role is more important than any other. They're just different roles. They're just different roles. Well, look, there's a lot to unpack there. If we had the time, in fact, I will have a separate session just on your leadership style. But I think a couple of things you mentioned just to sort of a sort of a focus in there. I mean, you talk about agility. I think it's so important given where the industry is today, where the world is, the point of transparency. And I and I really like knowing the why, the point you made, and, and, and obviously questioning and assumptions, or questioning their assumptions, I think is also very important. Um, so I want to then go now back to the Crown Corporation structure. I mean, obviously, you know, because of that, uh, what Manitoba Hydra does has to be very community focused. So maybe you want to just talk a little bit about, you know, your approach uh, to, to the community and specifically in terms of interacting with the indigenous communities that you serve. Can you talk a little bit about both, both, both of those things? Happy to. Um, you know, as I said, because we're a crown, every resident citizen of Manitoba is our customer because we are the sole provider of electricity and natural gas for di distribution and transmission. So we serve every single community. We are present and have a footprint in every single community. So as much as we could speak about how we support communities, 
every community has its own concerns and needs based on where they are geographically located and how we serve them through, through our infrastructure. There's a lot of history in terms of, based on what I described earlier, how we've evolved. So from a business community perspective, there's a lot of agricultural businesses, large manufacturing sector, actually a significant aerospace sector that most people don't realize, and a huge financial sector. There's also a growing sector, which is plant-based protein. So if you are, uh, do the plant-based Beyond Meat burgers, the raw material, the agriculture is here for that. And the, and the plants are now here that actually produce all of this. So they all have different types of needs, these businesses, in terms of the kind of energy they want, where they would like to see rates, products, services, et cetera. But I've talked about the businesses, but our residential customers is really where the rubber hits the road in terms of community. And we are in, uh, you know, we're north of the 49th parallel. We are in the prairies. And so we're in an area where we actually have some extremes of weather. Um, now, the good news about that is we actually have four distinct seasons, which I love having been born and raised on the West Coast. <laughs> but we have very extreme weather. So in winter, we can go down to minus 40 Celsius, which would be the same as minus 40 Fahrenheit. And that gets pretty cold. And our, our peak cold is typically in January and February, and it lasts for about three weeks. And during that time, people are using our energy, both electricity and gas, to heat their homes. And that is critical. And so reliability is critical. But in the summer, average temperature here might be 30 Celsius, but it has on occasion gone up to 40 degrees and that's including humidity. So there's that huge spread. And what does that mean for communities? Their needs are defined based on that. So as I said, reliability is paramount. But let's, let's talk specifically ab about communities. So each of these communities has a different need and their primary ask and our responsibility is reliability more broadly throughout the province for these communities. And we have a very active, we have actually have a group, we call them stakeholder engagement that engages with all the communities, not just in how we serve, but understanding their needs and how we're responsive to that because we take that reliability very seriously. We also have a number of programs that support communities because we're part of the fabric of the community and our employees live there in a lot of these more remote communities and how we work and support and engage. But the one I really wanna talk about that's unique for us is how we engage with and support the indigenous communities, many of who, whom are our partners. So in Manitoba, approximately 18% of the population is Indigenous. Hmm. And that's very, very important because they are customers, but they are also our partners. And how we interact with them, we interact on a number of fronts. Firstly, we have to be culturally aware of what the Indigenous culture is. And so every year, every employee, including myself, goes through a three-hour Indigenous cultural training workshop. Interesting. It, it's, I, I, I think it's critical because what we want to do is help our employees understand our Indigenous communities from where they were in the past to understand where they are today. Because you have to be cognizant of that past. Because the past has disadvantaged many of these Indigenous people. And they continue to face some challenges. And being cognizant, there's simply no other way to be than to do that. Because then you can engage in a respectful way and in a way that understands where they're coming from in their culture. So we, we, we use this to ensure we're respectful, we're aware, and we build mutually beneficial relationships. I talked earlier that we're a hydro utility. And there's no secret that hydro utilities have had an impact 
on the land and territories they operated. And it's been a difficult past for indigenous communities. So the, the first period of big development for Manitoba hydro, and it's for most hydro utilities in Canada, was around the, in the 60s into the 70s. And that's when very large hydro infrastructure was built. And they were built in indigenous territories and communities. And the way they were built then, from a number of different perspectives, how you went about it was very different than how it is done today. Those projects were developed at a time of different social and environmental standards. And what did that mean? It disproportionately impacted and disrupted Indigenous communities. In many ways, from a cultural perspective, to how they engaged on traditional lands, to waters, fluctuating levels, flooding in some area, and it impacted the natural seasonal flow of water. So these large projects had a huge impact. And it also had negative social impacts in terms of the transient workforces, large workforces that would go into the North to build these projects at that time where you didn't typically see that. So our approach to engagement is we don't shy away from or ignore the impact that we have. What we're working on and trying to do is work directly with the communities to reconcile those impacts. So we have a group, a team of professionals devoted solely to Indigenous relations. And they work very hard to build relationships, engage in the communities, and for us to take responsibility for the impact we have and do what we can to mitigate that impact. So we have hundreds and hundreds of agreements in place with various communities throughout the province that have been impacted by our developments that quite frankly, allow us to be this 96, 98% green dependable hydro utility. And the impacts are physical that we're addressing from the engineering of the projects, but also on the community. And so it's community infrastructure that we're building, it's services, it's training, it's jobs, it's joint venture business contracts. It is providing funding to support education. It is, it's, it's a myriad, it's shoreline protection, it's um, boat patrols to ensure they're safe on the water. So it's many, many things like that that we do. Because our last two major development projects, Wisquatum, that went into service in 2012. That's one of the large Northern ones. It was built in partnership with the First Nation at Nelson House, and they actually own 33% of that generating station. Mm. Kiask, that's our latest project. All seven turbines are now producing electricity. And that project actually started 16 years ago. It's in partnership with four Northern First Nation, Tataskwiat Cree Nation, War Lake First Nation, Fox Lake Cree Nation, and York Factory First Nation. And so these partnerships, the model ensures that the communities that are impacted can do a number of things. They can draw significant be benefits and not just economically. They were involved in the planning. They were involved in the environmental assessment. They were involved in the construction. 40% of our labor force in the construction of Kiosk, and we had up to 2,500 people on site up at Kiosk during peak development, were Indigenous. And 40% actually of our northern stations in operations are also Indigenous employees. We've taken this approach because we believe it's only fair. And we were one of the first utilities in Canada to adopt this approach. The first partnership was with Squatum, where we engage in this way, where we've got them having the benefits being received through actually uh, being a partner in the, the development. So uh, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. I believe as Manitoba Hydro, I've been in three other utilities. The work we do on that front is at the forefront of how I believe utilities that have had an impact or any industry should and need to engage with First Nations and Indigenous because you have to take it seriously. We would not be here today without them. I think Jay, you've you've laid out something that I truly believe has the potential of being a benchmark for 
many parts of the world uh, because uh, you know there are people in in different parts of the world who are impacted by what we do as utilities, and I think it's only fair to be able to understand how can the utility give back to the community. So um, uh, not for this exercise, but I will definitely want to follow up and see maybe a good idea could be perhaps to do a kind of a case study on, on what you've done and, and maybe have something published. Because I think I, I wasn't aware of the depth of the program as you've described it. And I think the listeners will certainly want to at least read a little bit more about it. So I'll, I'll get back to you on, a, on another, another platform for us to see how we might tell that story more broadly. But let's move on and get into one of the areas where you, you did have a foot in the infrastructure world before you came here. And one specific infrastructure that I think is key for the world today is transmission. Uh, and obviously, Manitoba, you've invested in transmission across borders before. But can you just tell us a little bit more precisely about the latest one, which is the Manitoba Minnesota Transmission Project, which ties the US and Canada uh, at that part of the border. So can you tell us a little bit about that project? Well, and it's one of the projects that was built while I've been in this role. Uh, beyond com completing Kiosk um, and Bipole 3, but uh, we call it MMTP, Manitoba Minnesota Transmission Project. So. You know, firstly, we've had a long history of energy exports. We've been exporting energy since the 1930s to the U.S. Wow. Um, our first major interconnection by today's standards was in 1976. So this was a key investment for us to build this transmission line, MMTP. And what is it? It's a long, high-voltage transmission line that went into service in June of 2020. So it connects to the Great Northern Transmission Line, or GNTL, in Minnesota. So Minnesota Power built the line to the border, GNTL, and we built MMTP for them to meet at the border. And, and this is really important because, as you, as you pointed out, Lawrence, transmission is going to play a much more significant role in how utilities ensure reliability in the future than they did in the past. So it's an important gateway for us to the US markets. And But why is it important? And there's mutual benefit from these. We can backstop our supply with imports. And really, we, we constantly are optimizing our system. And we optimize it day in and day out from an economic perspective, but it also, that backstop is critical when there's severe weather when we have weather events such as droughts or our system is impacted by weather in terms of where we can move energy. But we can also help those markets by supplying wholesale power to utilities in the US when we have uh, surplus. And why do we have surplus? Particularly we have surplus energy. And the surplus energy is because it depends on how much water we have. The more water we have, the more we can generate unless we're really at the peak of our licenses at that, and we don't have a need for that energy in Manitoba and we move it into the, uh, into the markets. So when we built MMTP, it effectively doubled our capacity for imports. And also it allows us to meet our firm contracts because we not only sell energy, we sell capacity. And capacity is what I believe in the future will be of the greatest interest in between utilities and in the export markets, given all the intermittent renewables that come in. So they're really beneficial relationships. And now we're moving forward on seasonal diversity contracts. And so what are diversity exchanges? We are a winter peaking utility based, given what I described earlier in terms of our weather. A lot of the utilities in the South are summer peaking, particularly given they're depending on solar. And so you can optimize between your two peaks so that you don't have to create dispatchable energy to meet those peaks. You, you, you trade your peaks off between when you have yours and then you can keep from building new generation infrastructure and potentially transmission depending on, on where it's built. So it's, it's a huge benefit from an ener energy security perspective, both um, for Manitoba but also the utilities that we work with in the South. And an example would be when Texas ran into its problems many months ago, 
we actually have large industrial customers we went to because we have curtailment agreements and said, we're going to curtail because we need to send more energy south, just given the energy security issue. And so, um, you know, we're, we're a coordinating member of MISO, which is a mid-continent independent system operator. Um, and so these are, are really beneficial agreements because they ensure energy security at the most economic value. Yeah, I think it's so interesting when you mentioned Texas and what you all did to sort of try and alleviate the challenge we're facing in the U.S. It speaks to the importance of an integrated grid, uh, integrated North American grid, and, and some of the things that we see the benefit of that in terms of integrating more renewables as you talk about the seasonal differences between, you know, Manitoba and the neighboring states in the U.S. Um, we start off by talking about some of the extreme weather events facing the world. Obviously, we saw the horrible situation in Pakistan. We're seeing increased increasingly wildfires all over the place. And we're seeing just this sort of a stress test, if you may, on grids around the world because of resilience and because of these extreme weather events. Specifically, uh, from your perspective, how are you guys building resilience um, in response to these extreme weather events? But then I know there was one of the wildfires you all had to deal with was the, uh, you know, Bukatawagan uh, wildfires uh, in your territory. So can you just talk first about what you all are doing to build resilience in Manitoba hydro system and then specifically a response to that wildfire? So volatile weather isn't something that's new for us because we have extremes in, in weather conditions. So we're, we're already have built in resilience into our, our, our grid, our systems and how we operate. But that, that being said, the pace with which we're experiencing climate events, that is increasing. An example is in my tenure since I've been here in 2019, we had what was called the storm of the century, the biggest storm that's ever been experienced in a hundred years in Manitoba. And it took us two weeks to get our last customer back on, not to address the damage, not to uh, rebuild it as it was, but it took us two weeks because we, I mean, these were communities we couldn't even get to in, in the South because there was just so much snow. Uh, we didn't have all of the parts and, and we actually relied on our partners like Minnesota Power, SAS Power, Hydro One. They came in to help us with this, bringing equipment, bringing, uh, inventory and bringing their people and with their support we got it into done in two weeks at least back on the, the grid still wasn't stable it still wasn't strong and what we did was where we did have damage we've actually started to build in additional resilience um, if you look at our transmission lines uh, we we have HVDC lines our third one bipole three has a very different route than one and two to, from a resiliency perspective to, to mitigate that risk. Some of the other things though that we are doing and one, the one that you specifically mentioned is Putawagan. And so that community was hit very hard by wildfires. And it was challenging to, to get there. And so we're getting much better uh, because they're on the la like their last mile on a line. What we did was we had to come up with innovative ways to get the equipment there that we needed. With this community, we were fortunate because there is rail, we were able to move in large generating stations that we procured in, in Ontario to get them into the community and to get the power back on as quickly as possible. That being said, it still took a number of weeks. And, and you need, we need to think about it this way, and I take this very seriously, which is when the power goes out in these communities and they're small, small remote Northern communities, the members have to leave the community because there is no energy and they have to be relocated and their families are living in, in hotels. So we work very quickly to re-energize. We have an amazing people here at Manitoba Hydro. And so we, were able, so we were able to much more quickly get them back online. We actually have a team that we constantly look at any particular climate event to say, what can we learn from it? And what can we prepare for and do in advance 
scenario planning, so how we can respond. We're also adjusting our asset management plans and strategies, whereas traditionally we defined reliability from the traditional views versus reliability relative to climate change and the potential impacts. And so even from it comes to how we actually do our day-to-day -day management in the plants, as well as the materials we, we use and what is going to be the length of span of a conductor and any closed systems to mitigate any uh, tripping out of the lines and the wires. So I, I think as utilities, we'll have a lot more we have to do on resiliency in general. It's mm -hmm. not just climate change and the weather events, but it's resiliency doing to the shift between dependable dispatchable energy and intermittent renewable and and we're accountable for planning for all those scenarios because at the end of the day we are we are 100 percent accountable for reliability hmm. yeah you know jay the way you mentioned resilience and how you talked about it i think it brings to my mind the need for innovation obviously you know you you talked about some of the technological innovation uh, that you've done uh it was nice to hear you it was nice to hear you talk about hvdc uh for full disclosure uh my my uh graduate work was on hvdc so i know a lot of the systems the nelson river project and some of those uh back in my my uh, academic days but innovation talk about what manitoba hydro is doing and specifically innovation in support of your approach to the energy transition. Can you just say a few words about what you all are doing? Sure. Um, how each utility is responding to the energy transition is different because it depends on where you're starting from. Depends on, on where you're starting from. So I already said we're 99, 96% of the electricity generated here is emissions free. It's green, it's dependable, it's dispatchable. We just recently shut down our last coal-fired and single-cycle gas thermal generating plant. And we did that after we completed MMTP because we could import power from the south and not need these plants, which is our effectively our, our peaking plants. From an innovation perspective, we know that we have to be agile. We know we have to think about things differently. And so one of the things that we are doing is we're doing our first ever integrated resource plan. And what is important about that? And that's where we're pulling in innovation because an IRP is where you look at, you engage, you consult broadly across the province with all of our customers as to trying to seeking to understand how they plan, intend to use energy in the future. And that will then inform, based on what we anticipate demand to be, what supply will look like and how the shape of that supply will need to change. We pull into that efficiency opportunities, how to not only just reduce energy, but really the demand for capacity, how you shave that peak. And so we're looking at new levers and tools on how to shave that peak beyond the traditional, well, we'll just build more supply. So what does that mean though? How we look at this, how we model all of this, how all of these variables come into play, including weather, which we were just talking about, is very, very different. From an innovation perspective, what does that mean? You're always trying to look around the corner. And what we need to get better at is understanding and asking our customers, what trade-offs do, do they want to make? Because at the end of the day, they will be the ones that are going to be paying for this transition in this new energy landscape. So what, what we're asking them, what do we, you see five years down the road, 10, 20? We're pulling in a lot more data from other jurisdictions to learn from them where they've gone earlier in this energy transition for two reasons. One, their electricity costs were much higher. And so other forms, uh, grid parity occurred earlier. But secondly, they were carbon-based and we weren't. So we're engaging with our customers very differently and pulling them into this process. And it's a tough one because 
technology is going to have such an impact on how this plays out. And we're very focused, much more focused on the impact of technology and emerging technology than we've ever been in the past. So we're gonna complete our first IRP in the summer of 2023. But what's going to be really, really interesting is how we look at making decisions as a result of it. Because if there is a demand need for new supply, particularly capacity versus energy, how are we going to meet that need? The lead time on supply, as you well know, I, anything we look at is like eight plus years for any material addition in supply. And so how do you make decisions eight years in advance when you still don't know how technology will pay, play out? You still don't know when utility scale battery storage will be price effective, which will be a huge game changer. That's what we're looking at. When will that happen? And then what role will we play? So what are we doing on innovation? We're looking at different scenarios and different pathways and seeing where are they congruent and where do they diverge? And at that point, what are the different decisions we might be required to make? So we're, we're really trying to look as far out as we can and pull that back in to say, what are the short-term decisions we need to make? It, it's fascinating if you're utilities or engineering organizations, and we've always worked in certainty. So the innovation needs to come in how you make decisions in an environment of uncertainty. I, I was actually, you, you, you took the word out of my mouth because I wrote on my paper, I was gonna go there and ask you a question as a follow-up because you know the IRP process you're doing on is, it seems very interesting bringing customers in, but how, in terms of uncertainty, Jay, how do you factor in some of the geopolitics in terms of critical minerals? And, and, and how does that level of uncertainty stress your process? Any thoughts on that? So, um, well, actually, Manitoba, it also has mining here in the north and, uh, you know, lithium mines and the like that could support EV batteries and charging. Policy is one of the biggest variables in the evolving energy landscape. Mm. Because a lot of the changes that are coming about are policy driven. And in the US, the model has been carrots, mm. incentives. That's what we've recently seen to, to, to support and, um, and accelerate this transition. In Canada, to date, it's, it's been more of a stick and I don't mean that as a negative comment on government, but carbon pricing. Mm -hmm. And by 2030, you know, $170 per, per ton for carbon pricing. That is driving the shift and how that's changing. Mm -hmm. From a geopolitical perspective, we're doing a lot of analysis. Um, and there's a lot of work out there, the information you can draw on. Particularly the one that we're focused on is modeling electrification of transportation and what will that mean? And, and, and when we're modeling, we're actually trying to figure out what will have the greatest impact, the electrification of what? Is it transportation? And in what form will that look like? Because it's not just reliability. When you're talking about electrification of transportation is, is where you need the electricity. So it's not just generation. It's transmission and it's distribution and how you, you look at all, all three and, and how that plays into it. Geopolitical could have a big impact. It's not just, and just yesterday I was reading about the shift has gone, the, the focus was on new mines creating the new key minerals, um, you know, metals that are needed to, to escalate uh, this energy transition. And now it's going back to look at harvesting old batteries and what you can, can do. And, and innovation is showing up in so many different ways, such as I think it's with Duke that Ford is working on with their F-150s, where the batteries can be used to create a ut potential utility scale battery. And what would that look like and what needs to be true for that? So 
in, in my view on innovation, not just about geopolitical, is you, and we talked about this earlier on assumptions, you always need to be looking at what needs to be true for this scenario to play out. And when you get to the what needs to be true, you go back to your underlying assumptions. And so more than ever in the past, utilities need to be focused on what's happening external to them versus just what's happening internally, which is where we've always really focused because we had control. And now our landscape, you've got so many new variables. Interesting. We have about we have about nine minutes left, and and I want to, I just want to add one more point to what you said, Jay, and you feel free to comment on it. But the behavioral aspect of customers is one of those uncertainties that I think, as I talk to utility executives around the world, that is one thing they were saying is we can we can we can deal with all the other I'll call technical uncertainty and even policy uncertainty. But there's one uncertainty that we have not been able to really. Uh, understand care, uh, properly, and that is customer or behavioral signs. Uh, is that something you all are thinking about as well? What if our customers don't want EVs? What do we then do? So what if they don't want X or Y, right? So how does one capture, based on your experience, having been in banking, infrastructure, and now the utility, how do we deal with customer behavior in terms of uncertainty? Is this something you can just give your thoughts quickly on that? From a customer uncertainty perspective, it comes in a number of forms. From the demand side, what mm -hmm. behaviors will they change? From a reliability side, reliability at what price? One of the things we're going to be asking our customers is traditionally hydro utilities, what you do is you plant, you take the worst drought you've ever experienced and you set that as your dependable energy line. And anything above that is, I mean, that's where your capacity has to be able to meet and you build your system around that. Anything it produces above that is energy and how you shape that is different because you can't sell it as dependable dispatchable energy. Well, how would you feel customers? And to, I mean, you can do this with large manufacturing customers, but really we're talking residential customers because I think you've got more certainty with the larger manufacturer. They plan like we yes. do multi-years. They're very clear on how all of this fits together. It's, it's the residential customers. And for us in Manitoba, our residential customers only make up about 40% of the energy that we sell. But that being said, that's also the rate class that's the highest price where you'll see concepts like grid parity and grid defection come earlier. The way we're dealing with it in Manitoba is we're, we're initiating, we're going out, we're communicating with them and, and letting, reminding them that first of all, you have green dependable energy. So you don't need to go to solar or wind right now. There may be a time, but you've got this green dependable energy. The other things along the customer side is, I really think what's, what we have to do is look at customers differently. We have to broaden our perspective of how we look at customers. Customers will have more choice. And what will they choose? When we're analyzing our customer base and how they use energy, it's very different depending on your age and how you want to use energy and how you engage in technology. You know, what? one of the things we're finding is our efficiency programs might reduce the energy a household consumes but that what they do with that dispose, additional disposable income by reducing their electricity costs, they buy other products that use electricity. And so the <laughs> consumption doesn't net change. And I think it's really starting to get into understanding customer behavior. So believe it or not, my undergraduate is in urban sociology, the study of people and groups and how they behave and interact. I don't believe utilities will be able, we need to understand that. We might have tools and levers to shape that behavior, whether it's time of use rates, whether it's connection fees, if you're for your solar, but you're still relying on the battery. It's some of those things. I believe what we're advocating for in Manitoba is energy policy, which is a, a, an umbrella under which all of this happens, where the underlying objective is that we, this full energy landscape that's evolving and it's Manitoba Hydro plays a key role, but this full energy landscape that's evolving, 
that we do that in a managed way to ensure that full cost of energy is at the lowest possible price. Mm, it's interesting. Depending on where you want reliability. But I think we have to, I'm, and we're very engaged. We're doing so much more on the customer front than we've ever done in the past. And mm. it will be even more so in the future. This is great. I mean, now that I know that little secret about you being a sociology back or having an urban sociology background, I should also emphasize that uh, there are many electric companies around the world who are now beginning to hire anthropologists on their teams to be able to help to understand behavioral science. So it's very interesting. Well, look, we're going to wrap up here soon, Jay. Just two quick questions. Um, now we've 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 we started with the history. We've dealt with current state of affairs. We went into the IRP, which is taking us into the future. But now I want to go way out into the future, going towards 2050. Um, and this is just your vision. So where, where do you envision Manitoba Hydro by the year 2050? And after that response, if you could just tell us that future you see for Manitoba Hydro, what concerns you about it and what excites you about it? To be honest, I don't look as far as 2050. And the reason why I don't, I mean, as CEOs, you, when you lead an organization, you're supposed to spend 25% of your time on hindsight, 25% on oversight, and 50% on future sight. And what is future sight? You're always trying to look around the corner to see what might be coming that will impact your organization, your employees, and your customers. I don't believe we can see as far as 2050. Why? Because technology will have a huge impact on what 2050 will look like. And the technologies that will do that are still emerging. So our strategy, we, we have something called strategy 2040, where effectively it's, it's about energy for life for Manitobans. But we've set 2040. Why 2040? Because 2030 is too short. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's things happening until 2030. But some of the key technologies that might fundamentally change, I believe, will, will at this point, based on what we see, manifest in the 30s, not just in terms of the technology, but also where that technology sits on, on the price curve and what that impact will look like. There's so many new options and sources of supply. And really, I think that the, the issue is going to be, what is the mix of capacity and energy in the broader integrated electricity system? And how do you optimize? And the key thing will be optimized. And the variable that will change the game is storage mm. in whatever form that is. And whether that is storage in hydrogen in aquifers, whether that is utility scale batteries, whether that is creating utility scale batteries by being able to access EV batteries in, in that, that are plugged in all the time. And, you know, you set that minimum threshold. So I can't see 2050. Mm. I can't see 2040. I can see into the mid-2030s. And that's what our strategy is built on. And we're really focused on the next 10 years. while still looking out past that. Mm. But we have to pull that into the near term. Because if we keep focused on 2050, we'll never make a decision because there's so much uncertainty and it gets back to that concept of minimum regret decisions. But what will Manitoba Hydro be? It will be the entity that will coordinate this evolving energy landscape that if it's not done in a managed way could threaten reliability and how we optimize it. I believe that's the role. Our role as an integrator will change from what it has traditionally, traditionally been. Well, but listen, I know I won't be here in 2050, just saying. <laughs> well, listen, to wrap up, one last question. I know you're very busy. You work hard. You do a lot. And play is very important. I was reading a book last night that talked about the importance of play and how creativity play is so critical. But it also said rest is also critical. And talk about the, both the mental rest, the physical rest, and they even talk about the creative rest. So for you, when you're not worrying about everything we've talked about, um, what do you enjoy doing? What is play? How does play look like for Jay? And besides playing, 
what keeps you grounded? Because I think as CEOs and leaders, sometimes it's always overwhelming to be able to deal with all the big issues and also deal with the, the, the smaller issues. So what grounds you, but what also excites you in terms of play? And I learned this over time. I look at what gives me energy versus takes energy. So I wouldn't look at it as play, but where do I engage where I'm getting energized? Mm versus what is taking energy from me. And so I'm, I, I'm always aware of that intuitively. And, and for me, work can be play. Yeah. Why? Because especially when you're problem solving, you know, problems that are new problems that aren't well defined, that you've got to find a way to, and you can work with the team and you're playing with ideas and concepts. I get energy from that. Mm. So it's, it's the ones where, Probably the things that take energy from me is where we have, I personally, or we have little control because then you're, you're dealing with different variables. But for me, play, what is play? Um, my husband and I love to cycle bike. You're outdoors, you're in nature, and we do it together, which is something that I really enjoy. That's play. What is play for me? Play for me is spending a Saturday afternoon in the kitchen, cooking, getting ready for guests to come over and I've got my music on <laughs> and I've got my music on play is being creative, mm. fill, filling those parts of my soul that, that need that creativity. What keeps me grounded? My values, my husband, my husband's an engineer applied math and computing. And I often forget when I'm in a work environment or the like, the role I play and how people respond to you because of the role. Um, and I always want to be one of the team. We all have a role to play, they're just different. But how does Dale keep me grounded? He calls me out, mm. you know, it's like, um, which is good, which is healthy. How mm. else does he keep me grounded? We live a very normal average life. Mm. As we progress through our careers, we haven't really changed a lot about what we do and how we do it. Because the monetary isn't as important versus the quality of life, the relationships, are you learning? Are you being active? That, that all keeps me grounded. That all keeps mm. me grounded. And, our, yeah. and, and the other thing I would say is the responsibility I feel to our employees and, and our owners who are all our customers. Mm. That keeps me grounded. I, it's about them. It's not about me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, responsibility comes, it brings about humility as well. The two go together. The more responsibility you have, you also end up being more uh, more humble. So I see the linkages there. We've been trying to do this, this podcast interview for the last couple of months, and I'm so glad we actually did it now because where the world is and the closing comments you just gave really sort of a help to, to bring some level of hope so let's end with you giving a shout out to young people uh, coming into this industry. And I would say to be very candid, young women coming into this industry because you're actually the first female CEO that I'm interviewing for this podcast. Not that I haven't tried, but others are very busy. So hopefully after you will be others who will come after and be part of the podcast series. But what would you what would you say to a young woman looking at engineering or looking at the profession of energy? What, what encouragement would you give them that would sort of uh, help us to wrap up this conversation? So what I would firstly say is to young people anywhere, hmm. this is the most exciting time to be in this industry. And you have an opportunity to be part of a change that I don't think we'll ever see in our industry again to this degree. Hmm. Secondly, I would say to any young person, do not think of a utility as a, in the traditional engineering focused organization. The skills that will be needed in the utility sector are going to be much more diverse and go much beyond engineering than they have in the past. Very different skill sets are needed. New capabilities are needed. And to what I would say to any person considering the role and a, and a woman, if you think you can, you can.
Well, on that note, uh, we're going to conclude our conversation. My guest today has been Jay Grewal. She is the president and CEO of Manitoba Hydro. Jay, thanks for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you again soon, specifically in Oslo in the next couple of days. Thank you, Lawrence. Um, this was fun. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.